Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. <laughs> my dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, hey. The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest, April Rivero, is on a mission to warn families about the dangers of prescription drug abuse and dirty doctors after the tragic loss of her son. April, welcome. Back in 2009, when Joey died, there wasn't a recognized opioid crisis per se, right? That evolved after. So what Joey died from were medications that had been prescribed to him nine days later, earlier by a doctor. And the doctor gave him first and only visit. She gave him 90 pills of 30 milligram strength oxycodone. She gave him two milligram strength Xanax, which is the strongest Xanax you can get. And that was a 30 day supply. So 30 pills of that basically. She gave him 90 pills of Soma, which is a muscle relaxant. I don't know how much you know about this whole issue, but that's that particular combination of Soma, Xanax, and any kind of opioid, I learned after the fact is known as the Holy Trinity. It is a particular combination of drugs that is particularly potentially deadly because they're all central nervous system depressants, meaning that as they manage your stress, your anxiety, or your pain, or your tension, you know, muscle tension, which is what the Soma's for, they natural, each one of them individually slow down your breathing at some level. They just naturally do that. So does alcohol. So when you mix any of those in combination with each other and or with alcohol, they can slow your breathing down to the point it stops. You go to bed, you go to sleep, and you don't wake up. And so that's what happened to my son. It took us four and a half months to get his coroner's report back. And when we did, that included the toxicology report. We learned that he died basically from a pill and a half of oxycodone, a pill of Xanax, and some alcohol. And the alcohol level was just over the, the legal driving level. So it's not like he was just dropped dead drunk, right? So, I mean, first of all, we were just horrified. There was no history of addiction or, you know, historical issues with Joey at all. Back in those days, the kids did use Facebook. They don't so much. They've kind of evolved off of that platform. But at the time, they used Facebook. And I was Joey's friend on Facebook. And so I'm always checking it out to see what's going on. And, you know, what I saw was a lot of partying, obviously, going on on the weekends and that sort of thing. And so the conversations we'd have almost every time we saw each other or talked to each other on the phone is like, don't drink too much. You know, it's like, be careful with the alcohol. That was what I worried about. I had no idea that prescription drugs were being used in a, in a party environment there. They were part of the party mix, we call it now. They were recreationally being used to get high with, et cetera. And I had zero idea of that. I didn't know how potentially dangerous they could be. I didn't know that a couple of pills could kill you, as happened to my son, if mixed with alcohol and each other. So first of all, we're horrified and just devastated, as you can imagine, with the loss of this amazing kid. He was just very, very bright, total, you know, just everybody's friend ready to graduate in five months from Arizona State University. So he's a senior, just about out of that university. And then the unthinkable happens. 
after going all the way through high school, and, you know, almost all the way through college, and here we have a dead son. It, it was just terrific. And then for me to learn that prescription drugs at such a level could take the life of this 21-year-old perfectly healthy young man was inconceivable to me. And so, you know, as we're looking at this, as we, you know, are coping with the, you know, getting him back home, you know, burying him the day after Christmas, because this happened just a week before Christmas in 2009, I just kept thinking, we've got to tell the world about this. You know, we need to alert people because if it can happen to our family, it can happen to anybody. You know, we weren't a family that hardly ever had any prescription meds at all, much less, you know, these heavy duty medications that, you know, he passed away from. Another part of the story is that it took about six and a half, seven years, but the doctor that prescribed the medication was ultimately convicted of second degree murder in Joey's case. So she was arrested. She was convicted of his death, along with two other young men and five other young men that had been under her care had also died. So like, I think there were eight or nine young people who had died and she was charged at various levels, you know, for there were three second degree murder charges and the others were illegal prescribing, basically convicted of everything though, and sentenced to 30 years to life in prison. So her case ended up being a very high profile national case. And the good news about that was, of course, number one, I didn't want her ever prescribing again. I didn't care if she went to jail or not, but she needed to never prescribe again. Because we learned, of course, over time that people from every county in Southern California were flocking to her office. She was running a pill mill and prescribing indiscriminately to all these young people that were you know, many of them getting addicted and ultimately dying from her medication and her treatment. Yeah, so she's she's serving her time now and will never practice because you don't practice ever again, having three murder charges against you, right? And they're not going to be rescinded. She's already worked all, all the way through the California State Supreme Court and they they wouldn't even listen to her case. So she's done. As far as I know, there's no other legal recourse for her. So Anyway, so on top of dealing with, you know, the devastation of losing our son and my immediate personal feeling that I needed to make a difference and get the word out and establishing the NCAPD, the National Coalition Against Prescription Drug Abuse, that became a nonprofit. Joey died in December 2009, and by June 2010, we had the organization up and running. I was speaking even like a month after he passed away. I stood up and spoke at a parent education event that was talking about the prescription drug problem. It wasn't opioid specific at that point. It was about prescription drugs. And so our organization has never focused just on opioids. We certainly have a keen focus on it because it is such a big problem. But I will tell you that there is a not talked about, not discussed, but I believe a raging problem with benzodiazepines in particular, they're used to treat anxiety. That would be things like drugs like Xanax, Ativan, Valium. We have a big problem, I think, with things like sleep aids, like Ambien. You know, that can be amnesiac, in fact, and people get up and do weird things in the middle of the night and don't even remember what happened to, you know, what they did. So we have focused on all of those. And then it was about 2012 that I was really frustrated with my own county's public health care system, you know, public, public health, meeting with the highest level officers within the county and, you know, sharing our personal story and encouraging them, should say, insisting that they do more than they were doing. They really weren't focused on this issue. 
And so it took about three years. Well, so bottom line is I established at that point, thinking that maybe I could get more support from the county entities, you know, like public health and others. I established on top of, in addition to NCAPDA, I established uh, the Contra Costa County MEDS Coalition. So MEDS, M-E-D-S, stands for Medication Education and Disposal Safety. So both organizations, NCAPDA working at a federal level, you know, we, we work wherever we want to, but with a keen focus on, on the California Bay Area because that's where we live. That's where we're based. We actually provide fiscal sponsorship for the MEDS Coalition. I lead that coalition also. And that's how I came to know Sarah, of course, as I mentioned. So, so it was really to pull in the county officials and to really get people involved and to understand that this was not an emerging problem. It's now doubled or more in size, you know, over time. You know, when I first started giving presentations as an example to community members, whether they were youth or whatever, I think we had about that, about 35, 36,000 people that were dying a year back in 2010 from an overdose. It's now 80,000 people in 2020. And we're expecting that 2021, we could grow to have over 100,000 people die from overdose. And that's, it's not just from prescription drugs, right? It's more and more the case that we're seeing fentanyl as an illicit opioid tainted overdoses. So Fentanyl is showing up in the powder form. It's being, other drugs are being adulterated with it. So you're finding fentanyl and cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, even marijuana showing up in to give it an extra boost, you know, like you need it. <laughs> and so it, it's showing up everywhere. And just a few specks of that can kill you. It's extremely potent, extremely dangerous. Additionally, drug dealers will take the powder form and they'll create what look to be real pharmaceutical medications like Xanax, like all, all the medications that people are looking for, you know, the most abused. So Vicodin, Percocet, you know, Norco, certainly Xanax, those are showing up on the street. People are buying, trading, buying, whatever, and they're fentanyl. They're either pure fentanyl or they're laced with fentanyl. We've got to get a handle on the prescription opioid prescribing levels. Before, you know, we connected here, I was actually literally on a, a computer putting together a letter that we're going to send out to all sorts of sports leagues, baseball, whatever it may be. Because in California, we actually passed a law a couple of years ago that I don't think most coaches even know about that say that before the season starts, so as registration's happening, the student athlete and their parent, if they're under 18, they are supposed to receive an opioid fact sheet that was put together by the CDC that really basically delineates the dangers, you know, the safety elements for opioids, because it's not uncommon for student athletes to get injured. Sports injuries are inevitable. Typically, pain is involved, obviously. Now, it may be mild to severe pain, but it's not uncommon for opioids to be prescribed even for mild pain in a sports situ you know, injury situation. So if the kids and their parents don't know that, hey, these can be addictive, if you mix them with alcohol or this, uh, other substances, you can literally die from them, from overdose. They, they don't know. Uh, there's a very low perception of harm, even still, for prescription-related drugs. And the opioids are the ones that, that are probably the most immediately dangerous that we have to get the word out about. And they didn't see it coming. They didn't ask for it. 
they don't know what to watch out for. You know, even the CDC has said with their guidelines that they put out, I think in 2012, even post-surgically, either avoid them completely if you can, depending on your pain levels, you may not be able to do that, but minimize, take those opioids for the smallest, the shortest amount of time possible. Doctors shouldn't even prescribe them for longer than three to five days. And they do, often they'll give you a 30 day supply. Well, if you take them for 30 days, you are at high risk for developing the opioid use disorder. Your body's gonna become dependent on them, meaning that you can't just stop without feeling the withdrawals from those opioids. They're gonna make you really sick. You know, when one person in the family has an opioid use disorder or any kind of use disorder, the whole family suffers, friends, everybody that loves or cares about that person, they're part of the, you know, they're, they're caught up in this. It's a horrible cycle. So what our organization is trying to do is educate so people don't go that, down that path in the first place. So through education, policy change, legislative advocacy, where we have those opportunities, that's where we work. And we work with a lot of other organizations out there. When I first started in CAPDA, I felt like I was a lone ranger. And my concept initially was, okay, let's start this organization, try to build others out there so that by then I was starting to connect with other, other parents in particular who lost their kids. So what can we do to have them start a little local chapter and they can work under our umbrella? So over time, there was also another organization back in 2012 that I personally helped form. It was called the Fed Up Coalition and still exists. So we, I'm one of the executive on, what do we call ourselves? <laughs> executive steering committee members for that organization. And we work to drive federal action. So it's uh, through our efforts and other organizations that we work with that, you know, we've been able to stimulate a response from the president back in Obama's days. There'd been, never been a word about this issue until, you know, we wrote a letter saying, President Obama, this is a huge problem. We are uh, parents, you know, we represent parents from around the country. You need to step up and say something and do something about this issue. So just about the time he was leaving, he did. And then we had Trump come in. People love him, people hate him, whatever. It doesn't matter to us. The bottom line is, even in his inaugural speech, he mentioned for the first time any president had the opioid or the you know prescription drug and the opioid issue, and that he was going to plug money into it. And he did. That was the first uh, stream of funding that we saw come down from our federal government. What was your son prescribed that medication for? Well, I, I mentioned that earlier. So he, he really had no problems. The key was pill mill doctors, as this doctor was. They don't care what your problems are. So, you know, he was coached on what to say when he went into the doctor's office by, you know, kids at Arizona State that were going to her routinely, right? So all he had to do is say, I'm anxious. I got pain in my shoulder. But there was no exam. It was like, oh, okay, here you go. <laughs> so it, it's just ridiculous. There was really no physical exam. And that's what got her into big trouble in the end. Because she was really prescribing without medical reason. There were no re medical reasons. And it was just a line out the door, one after another. Sometimes she was examined, bringing multiple people into an exam room. There was, um, I was there at the trial for the two-month-long trial. And it was just incredible hearing all the the evidence they had against her, it was ridiculous. And she's What did she one. say? Like, did oh, she say she anything? She was trying to help her patients. <laughs> it was, they didn't have a good defense. It was really just, she was, she was trying to help them. She wasn't trying to help them. <laughs> she had made $5 million off of her business in about three, three and a half years. 
with the way she was prescribing because she would collect money you know, cash in the door. There's probably no question at all that she was defrauding the federal government. You know, tax money wasn't being paid out on that cash. You can be guaranteed. They didn't even bother after going after her for that because they had her on all this other stuff. So they knew, they could tell. You can see these patterns of prescribing. And, and so she was reported by the, the pharmacies in her area. And that's why these young people, like even my son went over 30 miles away to a, a pharmacy outside of her area. And ultimately, not only did we go after her, but we went after the pharmacy too. And so the pharmacy was actually shut down by the pharmacy board because of irregularities too. That used to happen back on the time frame when we started, you know, got involved with this. It was really, 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 really bad with these pill mills down in Florida. And so they would actually have like in the same facility, it was like you prescribe it and right next door and in connection with that, that doctor's office was the pharmacy that you would fill them with. They were losing at least seven people, as I recall, a day in Florida at one point because of overdose in just that one state alone because of the pill mill activity there. It was horrible. How did you find out what happened with your son? It started the very night that we learned that Joey had died. The semester was done, finals were over, and the next day everybody was leaving to go home. So he had been out with his friends celebrating her birthday and early graduation for another student. So he stayed there about three days, well, five days after they finished their finals. And his girlfriend was done. She was not 21, so she couldn't go out and celebrate at the nightclubs with them. So she came back home to San Ramon, where we live. And uh, they basically met each other in high school. So they were both attending the same college, but she came back early. So some of the early information we got directly from her, you know, as we're waiting to hear, because we just initially knew that he had been found in his apartment unconscious. And we didn't really know until we talked to the Tampa Police Department that night, whether he was alive or not. And so in the meantime, as my husband's on the phone with them and I'm talking to her, I'm thinking alcohol may be a problem, right? But I, I just remember saying, do you, do you think drugs could be involved? You know, not really believing it could be true because again, we really had never had a problem with that with Joey at all. So, and I remember her nodding her head and I said, what are, tell me, tell me what you know. And she said, he went to a dirty doctor last week. And I said, well, what, what is a dirty doctor? I, I didn't even know what that was. And she said, well, this doctor's just throwing pills out there. So she, he, she said, he went there with a couple of friends. And so I'm concerned. You know, I mean, it, it was clear that she thought it might be, you know, the medications versus alcohol. So that night, then after, you know, we learned that he was gone, we went back to our house because we gathered as a family at my other son's house in San Ramon, too, when this happened. We went back home at about two in the morning. We got a call from the Tempe Police Department detective that was, you know, working through the, the case. And my husband thought to ask him, did you find medication vials in his, his room? And he said, yes. And so Joe asked him what the name of the doctor was on the, the vials and the, he told us. So after that was over, that, that conversation was over, I remember going down to my computer and doing a Google check on the doctor's name and on vitals.com, a website that people can leave reviews about doctors. I remember reading multiple comments about how she was a drug dealer in a white coat, that she was giving you know, all these drugs out to their kids and you know, wasn't stopping even when they called her and all this stuff. So 
I'm like on high alert here. Kelly, Joey's girlfriend has already told me that she was a derby doctor and I'm getting online evidence that there was a problem there. So we got through the funeral, you know, the day after Christmas and, and then within a week after he had passed away um, and that was all done, we, I called the DEA and reported him to the DEA. I'm not really knowing exactly how this, you know, what, what to do, but I, yeah. How do you know how to navigate? Like, how did you know to call the DEA? I am so proud of you for not giving up and look at you now. Oh my God. Well, I, I'm pretty sure it was a friend that, that my husband had that's an attorney that he consulted with. And from what I remember, it was he who said, well, the DEA needs to know, you know, because they oversee the, the medical community and they're supposed to, you know, if somebody is uh, prescribing like this doctor was, they need to be involved. So I remember calling, I had to leave a voicemail message for the DEA. And within 45 minutes, I had a, a call back right away from, it turned out, the DEA agent who had been investigating this doctor for two and a half years or more. There had already been an investigation underway for quite a while. And I remember thinking and just being like, why, why, what has she not been shut down before now? You know, why is it now, you know, like another person coming in? So bottom line is I gave them all the information they needed about Joey. Ultimately, I also did the same with the medical board, filed a medical board complaint. We ended up suing her and the pharmacy. And so those cases took a year or more, I don't know, a year and year and a half. We never even went to court. I mean, basically she just rolled over and said, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, it was her insurance company, I suppose that really paid in the end anyway, but yeah, it was. So we at least did our part in calling attention to her. Next thing you know, there are other families that are starting to also file lawsuits against her. So I think we were the first probably eight or nine families that did the same thing. And we had been told also that if we filed a civil lawsuit, that if the, the award per se, the financial award was more than 25,000, that that information could apply to the other case, the, the criminal case that we knew was underway that was being built. You know, overall then, like as they finally got the case built and they were ready to take action, by then, it had been handed off to the Los Angeles district attorney. That district attorney I had, I am forever grateful to, because this was a really, really difficult case. The general perception back in that time frame was, if somebody dies of an overdose, it's their fault. Doctors are good. They only do good work. They don't prescribe to make somebody die, right? And so... There was a huge perception and the stigma around overdose and addiction that had to be overcome. And so it would have been very easy for the district attorney not to spend the many millions of dollars I know they ended up spending on this case. At the point they arrested this doctor, she was put in jail, of course, and they did not allow her to bail out because they, the money that she had to bail out with, they considered to be dirty money. It was money she made from this practice that was killing people. So she sat in jail for four years. It took that long for this case to come to trial. And so she's sitting in jail. And here I am checking in now and then with the medical board, with the DEA, with DEA to see, well, like, okay, you know, where are we in this case? When is it going to come to trial? And so all along the way, just providing whatever information I could about Joey specifically, knowing that there were others out there, because ultimately I knew, especially with the preliminary hearing that happened, oh, by the way, on Joey's like 
23rd, what would have been his 23rd birthday, I learned, you know, that there were all these other parts of the trial, but I didn't know what the particulars were until the actual trial took place and all the inconsistencies about her business practice and people overdosing in her bathroom and yet not changing her practice. Her getting notified time and time again about, you know, from the coroners from various counties around Southern California about another one of her patients dying and still her not changing her practice. You know, it was just disgusting. How did she live with herself? I don't know. I, I don't know. I remember telling a reporter, because of course the news was all over this. It was really a, a high profile case, you know, a national case in scope. And, you know, I remember talking to the media multiple times. Just, I don't know how she sleeps at night. I don't know how she can go to bed knowing she's killed all these people and did nothing. And she was, I'm sure she's still not done. There are people walking around now that are still dealing with the substance use disorder that won't make it in the end, right? Eventually they'll overdose or they'll, who knows how many people have gone to jail, have been incarcerated because of their addiction problems, you know, that resulted in crime to support them. That stimulated from her prescribing. It's just disgusting. So, how long was she in practice? For that practice, she had started out, as I understand it, as a infectious disease doctor. So she was working in a hospital setting, but then she had a couple of children and she, her family was encouraging to, her to leave that and go to work with her husband, who was also a doctor. So they were actually working together in the same practice. And so it's very interesting that she was the one that was, in effect, nailed, right, with these overdose deaths. He was practicing right beside her. That's the other thing that was disgusting. Like, if he wasn't doing this himself, and he knew, he had to know what was going on. Because it had been just a family practice before. You make an appointment, you come in, you know, there's a few people in the office, you know, in the waiting room. This was, the, this was where there were people literally out the door waiting. They'd get there hours earlier. They didn't even need appointments. They would just wait, take their turn to walk in. There's no doubt that her husband knew what was going on. In fact, after, you know, her situation, it was either after she had been convicted or whatever, he was actually, uh, the medical board did go after him. They suspended his license for five years, but they basically gave him an out and said that if you follow these rules, you get, you know, some training on how to be a good doctor, right? This guy's been in practice for years. So if you get the training, if you, you have to pay for this person to oversee your practice for the five years and report to us on a quarterly basis, then you can continue to, to operate. He deserved to be shut down too. He deserves department. to be in the cell with her. Yeah, I, 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 I can't go so far as to say that because I don't know what evidence they ever pulled together to say that he was responsible for overdose deaths. But there was complicity there. There had to be, and from my perspective. So anyway, he's still practicing. She's in jail. These little kids are growing up without a mom. She's not even eligible for parole. She, it was 30 years to life in prison without parole until at least 30 years have been served. I will tell you just like two weeks ago, I checked to see if she's still in jail. They're supposed to notify me if anything changes, if there's a parole hearing or anything else, but I don't necessarily trust that I'll hear for sure. So I just go on and I know what her, you know, like her prisoner number is and I know how to get information. And so I know for sure as of two weeks ago, she was still sitting in jail down in Crone, down in Southern California. So. Do you think you'll ever be able to be at peace? More than anything, I just miss my son. 
And that's a daily thing. Pretty much every day, I would say I talk about Joey in some way. I'm talking to young people, I'm talking to adults, whatever, and I always use a personal story to help people connect to this being a real problem and real people being affected by it. So will I ever be at peace? You know, you I will miss my son forever. This shouldn't have happened to him. He should be with us. We've missed out a huge part of life with him. He's missed out on life, <laughs> adult life, right? So there's no peace in that. I am happy that we've reached resolution with the doctor, primarily because she's never going to hurt anybody else, not at least in by prescribing. So I'm at peace with that. We have reached closure with that situation. And I so, so regret and feel sorry for those families. And there, there are multitudes of them out there that have never reached closure and never will because the drug dealer or the doctor who provided the drugs that their children or other family members died from, nothing ever happened to. So I feel very fortunate we have reached closure in that regard. There's peace in that, but there's no peace in the fact my son is gone and he should be with us, you know? You don't lose a child and ever get over it. You just don't get over it. I've lost my mom, my dad, other members of the family. They were old, they lived their lives, they had their illnesses. Joey was healthy, he should have been. You know, she you should have thrived and graduated and gone on to all those, you know, dreams, hopes and dreams that he had for himself. We, we will never know what those would have you know, been in the end. Do you think about the good memories that you had? With oh, of course. Yeah. And, you know, the good thing is that my husband and I both retired really young. We were both in telecommunications. And so I was 48 years old when I retired. He was 49. And so that meant we were always with Joey. Joey was our world. He was our life. We have an older boy, but he was my son from our first marriage. And, you know, bottom line is it was like almost 14 years between he and Joey. So he goes off to college. Joey's just going into kindergarten. <laughs> so, you know, I thankfully have grandkids and a wonderful, you know, son and daughter-in-law and, and grandkids that are a core nuclear family. You know, the key would be that when Joey was young, it was really kind of us, just Joe, I, and Joey, because Jim was off of college and later he was married and all that. So we just have wonderful memories. We did a lot of vacationing, like the outdoors. So we went to Alaska, we went on cruises, we liked to hike and camp. And yeah, so, and, and Joey was way into uh, to sports. So four years old, he's playing soccer. And then he's playing very high level soccer, traveling teams and all that. And we were the typical soccer parents, you know, and then we were the typical football parents because, you know, by eighth grade, you wanted to play football and that's what we did. I feel like in college, like everybody does stupid experimenting. Yeah. yeah. I can't believe case, taking a couple pills and mixing that with alcohol could be instant. That's you know, really terrifying. You no, know, it, it really is. And, you know, it's like it isn't necessarily instant. Like in his case, they weren't tainted with fentanyl. These were central nervous system depressants that slowed and stopped his breathing, but it would have happened over a period of time, several hours. So the other regrettable thing is, and something, another thing that our organization does also I'll share with you, is that there was not Narcan or naloxone on hand. Do you know what that is? Have you is heard that of where they can pump a shot into you really fast? Yes and no. So there, naloxone is the generic term for an opioid overdose anecdote medication. So in the past, if you called 911 because somebody was overdosing, they would show up with this medication. And that's what they would either inject or deliver in some other way for usually an injection. 
And so now things, because the opioid issue is so big a problem, um, almost every state I think now has Narcan, a spray version of naloxone available, super easy to administer that can reverse an opioid overdose if you get to them soon enough. So Joey, I know was left in his apartment alone in his room without anybody checking on him for hours and hours. And so he could have been saved with Narcan or now any form of naloxone, I'm sure of it. Because even though the, the Narcan only works on an opioid overdose, and again, he, in his system, he had alcohol and he had those benzodiazepines, um, Xanax basically. If you just strip out one of those substances from the system, they can start breathing again, potentially, right? So I have no doubt he could have been safe with Narcan, but they just didn't know about it. It wasn't even available for the general population. It is now. Can you talk to me about what an overdose does look like? Yeah, basically symptoms would be, first of all, you can't rouse the person. So with an opioid on board, typically you're real sleepy, your breathing slows, of course. And there's a condition called, called nodding off. It's where we'd be talking, you and I, and I would just like, you know, like literally you're nodding off. You can't, you know, converse. You're just kind of out of it. And then if that person just really just becomes unresponsive, you know, they're, they've collapsed, you're shaking them, you're pinching them, whatever you can to get their attention and they're not responding. Especially, I mean, if you know that they've been using drugs of any sort, knowing that that fentanyl could be in anything that they've taken in, that would be one thing. So it's mainly the breathing. It's your fingernails, your lips may turn bluish or purplish. And depending on your skin tone, that can vary, but it, it would be an unnatural look to your fingernails and your, your lips in particular. And you may be vomiting, you may be sweating, you know, so those are the main things. You said your son was going to this dirty doctor with friends. Were they trying to party? Uh, well, that's another part of the story. So my son flipped. And did that. they have any reactions? Those friends no, would also. No, the one, one of them was, we had been told, had an addiction issue. He could use way more than Joey ever would have been able to use because his body had adapted to those levels. And I think that the other kid, this was his first visit to that doctor too. So what the one student would do is he would go see this doctor once a month because you can't, I mean, you have to wait 30 days to get your next you know, prescriptions. And so he'd wait 30 days and then he'd invite other students to go with him. And it just so happened, he ran into my son you know, they were out with some friends and my son's problem was that he was living with two roommates that were fraternity brothers of his that had an addiction problem too. And so they were using this stuff. When Joey came home three weeks before he passed away, he let us know that these two roommates were not paying the rent or anything else anymore. They were using all the money from either jobs or family, you know, their, their parents to buy the drugs that they were hooked on, prescription drugs. And so we're sitting literally around the Thanksgiving table saying like, well, this, again, keep in mind, we didn't know anything about prescription drug abuse and how prevalent it was and how deadly it could be. So we're just having this, this conversation about the fact that, you know, we're paying for Joey's school stuff, you know, and we just pay directly and get, you know, pay for his room and board and give him money for food and all that. But we weren't going to pay for the other two boys too. You know, they're, everybody's supposed to pay their share. So we're saying, well, Joey, it's not okay that they're not paying the rent so you need to talk to him and he's saying i have talked to him it's not doing any good i don't know what to do and so we're saying well we can call their parents 
I wish we had now, knowing what I know now, but we didn't know. So no, no, I'll go back and talk to him again. And so again, three weeks later, he's dead, you know, because he happened to run into these guys and they were going to go visit this doctor, knowing that his roommates and like, again, within his world there, there was so much prescription drug abuse going on, recreational abuse. He knew that he could go get that stuff and sell it in a heartbeat. And then he'd have the money to sustain the apartment until he graduated four and a half months later. So horrible thinking, right? The brain of a 21-year-old kid that isn't fully developed is how I have to look at it. This was a horrible way to solve your money problem. You know, it would have been far better to move him out of that apartment. Had we known, we would have done that. Got him a different place. You didn't know. It was a lack of awareness and education. So, and you probably wanted him to be independent and well, not be too... and work his problems. He's 21. Right. You know, I would say that he'd always had super support from it. Like, you know, if he had a problem, he'd call his dad first, right? Because his dad would take care of, you know, whatever's going on. Better call daddy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that was okay. But, you know, he's getting older. He is a 21 year old, you know, young man. And okay, let's let him try to work this out. Uh, not realizing that those two boys, those other boys, there was nothing that was going to change. In fact, nine months to the day after Joey died, one of those two young men shot and killed himself in front of his girlfriend. He was so mired in prescription drug issues. Oh my God, my heart. Mental oh my health God. problems. He had bipolar issues. Had no clue of before I talked to his mother after this horrific thing. Yeah, so that's what we were coping with there. Six months after they were about, uh, after he passed away, I got a Facebook message from a kid. I didn't even know they were the issue. And I remember him saying, can you help me was the, the little header on this thing. And when I contacted him, basically said, there is a doctor here in Tempe, Arizona, that opens up his office once a month. And my fraternity brothers flocked to see him. He said like 70% of them have already developed an addiction to these pills. And so he was looking for me to help him shut this doctor down. He was graduating early in December, you know, and he said, I don't know what to do. He said, I, I really want, I'm hoping you can shut this doctor down. I hope it's the last thing I can do for my fraternity because he, this doctor's going to kill him. Kill him. <laughs> so, yeah, so I took some action on that one too. And Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to cover? Let's see. I think that probably we'd want to say like, what advice would you give parents? Because I think one of the biggest problems is, you know, what advice I would give parents? would be that they need to lock up their medication, first of all, right? You never know who's coming into your family or into your house that may be drug-seeking, whether it's young kids that are friends of your teenagers or family members or neighbors or cleaning people, whoever comes into your house, you know, may be seeking medications. And so don't be part of the problem, you know, don't be a supplier unknowingly to someone who may be looking for those drugs. The other thing is learn where to drop off and get rid of your medications you don't need anymore. Because typically people just leave their stuff in their medicine cabinet. Over time, it expires. Um, and just because it's expired does not mean it's dead. <laughs> Medication, in fact, some of it actually becomes more potent over time, interestingly enough. So you want to get rid of it. Most of the time, CVS, Walgreens, these pharmacies are getting more and more of them in, in all of our states across the country are, are taking back medications. Typically, there's just a kiosk a bin close to the pharmacy counter um, you can ask the pharmacy also a lot of the police stations have them too 
what you don't want to do is throw the medication into the toilet or down the drain because it goes into the water system. Even if you put it in the trash, it goes into the water system eventually. So that would be one thing. And then parents need to, when they have a conversation about substance use with their kids, whether it's alcohol or illegal drugs, prescription drugs has to be part of the conversation. And they really, really need to understand that kids, if they want to find drugs, can find them easily. The social media platforms, TikTok, Snapchat in particular, right now are kind of hotbeds for drug activity. That's terrifying. It is terrifying. And they need to absolutely understand that fentanyl is a different community. Wow. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me and like wanting to meet with me beforehand. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Did you learn something from this <laughs> this podcast? How's that? Yes. It was so good to connect with you. Please yeah, you too. If there's anything else I can do, let me know. Okay. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. This is a very sensitive subject matter, as you know, because you know that we've seen drug addiction, we've seen alcohol addiction, we've seen tobacco addiction, and even in our own family. And we've seen it in friends. We've seen it in classmates. We've seen this all over the country, and it's all over the world. So it's a very sensitive subject because let's not be naive. It's easy to pass the blame to everyone. But the fact is, is that it's very complicated and we shouldn't be naive to think that there's many different parties that is responsible for this. I give April a lot of credit after the, losing the tragedy of her son that she wanted to make a difference, go after people that definitely have done some wrong things, try to make also other people aware of how deadly prescription drugs can be. This opioid crisis is going on as we speak. There's a New York trial that is just starting, and there's a California trial that's going on as we speak. There's very large companies that have now gone bankrupt and are going to pay billions of dollars in penalties. And yet the FDA has approved these opioids and a lot of these uh, drugs, and yet doctors prescribe them. And yet kids and people get addicted to cigarettes and get addicted to alcohol and get addicted to taking drugs because they think it makes them feel better. And they keep taking and doing more and more of it because they think that it makes them feel better. So, I mean, there's also individual responsibility for some of these things. It's just very sad that a lot of people that abuse drugs and alcohol, they do it for all different reasons and different escapes. April, your son was hanging out with two roommates that were addicted to these drugs. You have corrupt doctors that get incentives and make money by selling these drugs over and over again. Uh, I like what you said, there should be some type of limit on it because if it's that easy to get addicted to it, you don't wanna be handing out 30 or 90 pills at a time. And yet we've seen that happen like I said, even in our own friends and family, this stuff has been prescribed now for years. And once these people get on these things, it's addictive and you need more and more and more of it to get, to get the relief that you're looking for. We should have programs where we can not only explain what can happen to someone, but where we can try to help people find a different method 
of helping cure themselves. I feel like that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to do that, but unfortunately she's lost her son. I'm not sure she knows everything that he was doing from the interview, but I feel very bad that she's lost someone that is very precious to her. Sometimes they take the alcohol and the drugs to get a high and just to be popular with their friends because their friends are doing it or their roommates are doing it. And they're all just having a good, they think having a good time. And unfortunately, a good time, whether it's done once, twice, or 10 times, it affects people differently. And the combination of these things, I agree with you, can be deadly, even after just a try or two. There's a a few people that we know also that overdose, they didn't mean to overdose. The, The fact is, is that they have no idea how devastating these drugs and combinations can be. They think they're having a good time with it. And unfortunately, they end up as being part of this tragedy. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Danny Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.